Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for downloading, subscribing, and listening to this episode of The Next Track. This is episode number 20, brought to you by Kirk's book, Take Control of iTunes 12. Get 30% off the book right now by going to thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. Today, we are happy to have musician, historian, and author Elijah Wald joining us. Elijah, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So I got in touch with Elijah because I recently read one of his books. Now, here's the backstory. I mentioned on an earlier episode that I bought a new guitar not long ago. And the music I wanted to play is music that I played back in the day, and we're going back pretty far here, acoustic blues. So I bought a really decent acoustic guitar, not really expensive, but really decent, about the price of an iPad mini, actually, in this country. And I've started to play some of the old songs that I used to play back in the day. And I really love this music, and I've always loved it. I discovered this music through Hot Tuna. So I was a deadhead, and Hot Tuna was another band that, you know, deadheads went to see. And Yorma Kalkin and Jack Cassidy originally, and then Yorma played an awful lot of solo shows in New York when I was growing up. And I just loved this music. I just loved the, the way it spoke. I loved the way a single musician with a guitar and voice could keep people transfixed for hours. And, and I remember, you know, specific Yorma shows that went on for three hours. And it's always a music that I'd wanted to learn more about, not only playing, but about the history of it. And that's what led me to Elijah's book, which is called Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. Elijah, you wrote this book, what, about 10 years ago? Uh, yeah, that would be about right. Maybe 12. So all of us people who discover the blues think of Robert Johnson as this sort of person at the top of the pyramid. And what really interested me in this book is that that's totally not true. Elijah, first, how did you discover the blues? Um, I actually had an older brother, a good deal older. He was 19 years older, who played blues guitar. And he actually, he knew people like Booker White and had met Reverend Gary Davis and all of that. So uh, he turned me on to a lot of it. I had his records a lot of the time because he was traveling and just listened to them. So it was very much part of my childhood. And even before that, actually, I'd had these 78s of basically the typical communist record collection, the Red Army Chorus, Paul Robeson, but also Josh White. And Josh White was the one who I was most excited by, along with Woody Guthrie. So that was really my introduction to this. And so how old were you when you started playing? Um, I started when I was seven years old. Oh, that's pretty young. Well, I, w I wanted to be like my big brother. You know, I, I don't think that's very unusual. And, you know, I first was playing Woody Guthrie and, and Pete Seeger stuff because, frankly, that was what was approachable for me. But rather quickly got into Josh White and, and then, you know, Mississippi John Hurt they were, I was growing up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there were a lot of people around the area who played that sort of music. I mean, when I was five years old, four or five years old, the first concert I consciously remember going to was an afternoon children's concert by Jim Queskin and the Jug Band. So it was just, it was around me. That's really interesting. And I've looked on your website, you have a really interesting page, Old Friends, a songobiography. And you've got like a hundred songs that you play on videos, and each one of them you give a little introduction. You've had some pretty prominent teachers as a musician. Well, in particular, Dave Van Ronk. Um, I was lucky because a friend of our family, um, 
I heard Dave Van Ronk when I was 12 years old and it completely blew me away. And I just mentioned it to a young woman who was over for dinner and she said, oh, he's a friend of mine. So pretty soon I was hanging out with Dave and then I moved to New York for a year to study with him. And I happened to arrive at a good time. For me, it was actually a low time in his life. But because of that, he was very glad to have sort of a young player who was into all the old stuff show up on his doorstep. And so I ended up, whenever I was in New York for years, I would be sleeping on Dave's couch and listening to him until three, four, five, six, seven in the morning telling stories. You mentioned um, crashing on Dave Van Ronk's couch, which reminds me of some of the scenes in the Coen Brothers movie Inside Lewin Davis, which is based somewhat on events in Dave Van Ronk's life in Greenwich Village and elsewhere. And there's a lot of couch crashing in that movie. Uh, have you seen Lewin Davis? Well, I presume you have. And was it faithful in any way to episodes in Dave Van Ronk's real life? I sure have seen it. It was based on actually Van Ronk's memoir, The Mayor of McDougal Street, which I wrote oh. um, because he had died. And so I, I, we had been writing that book together. And then he, he died before we could get it finished. And I ended up having to write virtually all of it. So, yeah, the Coen Brothers film, some of the stories in it are from Van Ronk's life, but they were really creating their own character. I, I have to say, I liked the movie. I know a lot of people in Dave's world didn't, but I liked it and his wife liked it. And, you know, to hell with the people who didn't. Well, I agree. I'm a, I'm a Coen Brothers fan anyway, but I really enjoyed the uh, week in the life of aspect of it. We discussed it the other day, and what really annoyed us was the whole thing with the cat. It seemed to be just unnecessary but anyway I, I'll tell you if, you if you go look if you look at Dave Van Ronk's in, Inside Dave Van Ronk album which is the the album cover that they're cribbing the cat's there on Dave's album cover I don't oh, know okay. why he never had a goddamn cat but the cat's <laughs> right there <laughs> so so just just as an aside I was scrolling through the, the videos of your songs and you claim to have the first song you learned to finger pick was exactly the same one that I did, 99 Year Blues, which is actually not a difficult song. It's a single chord. What I found that now I've been paying more attention to, to playing and, and there are all sorts of resources now. There are DVDs and online videos and, and tablature and all this, that this music isn't extremely difficult to play at, at a basic level. Well, I mean, that's true of any folk music. I mean, the nature of a folk music is that people picked it up from the people around them. And when, you know, obviously when they started picking it up, they were playing stuff that was very simple. And then they get to stuff that's more complicated and more complicated. And after a while, you're on the level of, you know, virtuosity, if, if you ever reach that level. Yeah, I don't think I will. I'm not aiming for that. I mean, I was looking at the way you play 99 Year Blues and the way I play it. And, you know, I've got other things to do in my life than. <laughs> so the, the first chapter of your book has a very simple title. And I think this is a good question to ask you. What is blues? Yeah. And, and, you know, rather quickly, what I say is different people have different answers and I'm not arguing with any of them. I mean, my feeling on that one is... I'm happy to talk about music. If you disagree with the way I'm using the word blues, tell me how you're using it and we'll use your way. 
Um, I'm really not picky. I, I'm more interested in talking about the music than in defining terms. Yeah, and and isn't isn't one of the problems with music like this that it sort of gets appropriated at a given time and it gets defined in a very specific way, and this is probably the main thrust of your book, explaining how the blues got defined the way we know it today, right? Well, and and also who are we? I mean, you know, there's a tendency of white blues fans of my generation to feel like we're, it, I, I guess the simple way to say this is, I wrote a book saying what blues meant to black people in Mississippi in 1935 is different than what it means to white people in the 21st century. And the thing that fascinates me is that there were white people who took offense at that. That should seem like, I would say like a very obvious statement. How could it not seem different? That's not a criticism of modern white people. It's just saying we're living in a different world than black people in Mississippi in 1935, which God knows is obvious enough. Yeah. And so so one of the things you point out that I found really interesting, and you use Robert Johnson as an example, and, and this is probably the best example one could choose, because as I said earlier, he is sort of at the top of the pyramid when we look back from our white knowledge of the blues. But back in the day, very few of these musicians really knew who he was. Well, I think one of the things that it's easy to forget is that, you know, Robert Johnson, to people in Mississippi of his generation, sounded modern because he sounded like the guys on records from Chicago and Indianapolis. But to people in Chicago and Indianapolis, he already sounded old fashioned and they were already getting away from that. And that's a real disconnect for us because one of the things we love about him is that he has that sound of the deep, dark delta, not just in 1935. I mean, the songs that these days people tend to most talk about of Robert Johnson are his versions of older Mississippi guys like Skip James and Sun House, which was the most archaic part of his repertoire. And it's the part that's most exciting for us and was least exciting to the people around him in his day. And that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. I mean, that's not a value judgment in any way, shape or form. That's just saying we have different tastes. How is it that we regard Robert Johnson as the focal point or, as Kirk said, the top of the pyramid? I've never heard him described as a shameless self-promoter unlike someone like W.C. Handy, who copyrighted and published and took credit for a lot of traditional blues songs. So how is it that Johnson is considered a primary source for Mississippi blues music? How did that happen? Um, there are a couple of reasons. One of them is that the stuff was really well recorded quite late. I mean, 1935, 36, 37 is, is very late for acoustic Delta blues. And because of that, the technology was good. And a man named John Hammond at Columbia Records fell in love with that stuff already in the 1930s. And so those records, not only the, the old 78s, but the original metal parts that they were made from were preserved. So you can hear Robert Johnson sounding like it was recorded yesterday. Whereas you hear Sun House on scratchy old Paramount 78s where you can barely hear the music or Blind Lemon Jefferson. So part of it is just that stroke of luck. But there's another thing, which is he was he's the first major blues artist, country blues artist, rural blues artist who learned more off records than he learned from the people around him. And as a result, if you listen to Robert Johnson's repertoire, 
you're hearing the sound of Sun House, who was the guy he learned from in his neighborhood, but you're also hearing him doing the sound of Leroy Carr, the sound of Lonnie Johnson, the sound of Petey Wheatstraw. So it's sort of just in Robert Johnson, you have this picture of all these different blues styles from that period, whereas everyone else from that period, the rural players, you tend to just be hearing one style. So he's, you know, there's just, there's a breadth of knowledge in his playing because he has access to all the records. So he stood on the shoulders of giants, as it were. Exactly. I mean, the people who were recording 10 years earlier, people like Blind Lemon Jefferson, didn't have records to listen to. And so they just sound like them, whereas he's got all these different styles. He's a, it's a much more varied body of work. Let's take a short break here, and in a minute we'll be back with musician, historian, and author Elijah Wald, and we'll talk more with him about Robert Johnson and the blues. We'll be right back iTunes can be confusing, confounding, frustrating, but the more you understand how iTunes works, the less difficulty you will have with it. Kirk's book, Take Control of iTunes 12, covers just about everything that iTunes can do, from ripping CDs and converting files to tagging, sorting, searching, streaming. Take Control of iTunes 12 will help you manage your media, sync to iOS devices, and more. Now, Kirk's been using iTunes for 15 years, and you may also know him from his iTunes Guy column at Macworld, where he regularly explains the common and arcane elements of Apple's music management app. Take Control of iTunes 12 is written in an easy-to-follow question-and-answer format. You want to know how to do something? You just look up the question. It's the indispensable guide to iTunes. And right now, you can get Take Control of iTunes 12 and save 30%. Just go to thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. Save 30% on Kirk's Take Control of iTunes 12 by going to thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. One of the interesting things you, you go into a, a fair amount of detail about in this book is about what was popular at the time. And again, from our white, let's say 1960s, 1970s on perspective looking back, the music that we're considering to be the best, and I'm doing air quotes here, authentic blues, isn't in any way what was really popular music back then. Well, not by 1935. I mean, by 1935, if you asked people who's your favorite blues artist, um, probably most people would have said the Count Basie Band. I mean, the Count Basie Band defined the current blues sound by 1936, 1937, the time that Robert Johnson was recording. Um, if you asked people... And we don't consider that music to be blues now. Well, uh, I do. <laughs> I mean, what, what can I say? Okay, you do. But I'd say the general public, when they think of blues, they don't think of a big band. Um, all I can say is if you ever saw B.B. King, you saw somebody fronting a band like the Count Basie Orchestra circa 1936, 37. I mean, a lot of us have seen that. We've just, you know, there's, there's a, a way of talking about this that puts B.B. King in the category with Robert Johnson rather than the category with Count Basie, but that's not sonic. If you yeah. listen to the records, it sounds like the Count Basie band more than it sounds like Robert Johnson. But but you also mentioned that a lot of these musicians liked other types of popular music, and in some ways, particularly the, the blues revival of the 60s, sort of pigeonholed them into playing this older blues music, which wasn't always what they really liked most. Yeah, well, you know, one of the funny things about it all is that a lot of people like us, 
um, maybe white, maybe middle class people living in the 21st century think there's nothing strange about us liking black music from the Mississippi Delta, but think it's very peculiar that black people from the Mississippi Delta liked Bing Crosby. Um, you know, there's this tendency to think of them as living in a limited world and us not. But the fact is, it makes much more sense that somebody black in Mississippi would aspire to the world of Bing Crosby than that we would aspire to be poor and black in the Mississippi Delta. And yeah, Bing Crosby is a perfect example. I mean, Robert Johnson, among the people who knew him, was famous for the fact that the latest hits coming on the radio, he could play all of that stuff and that he could yodel like Jimmy Rogers. Um, and, you know, the big name, and I mentioned him a bunch in my book, is Leroy Carr, who's a name who's largely forgotten by blues fans today and who was simply the most popular male blues singer of the late 20s and early 30s, hands down. And when you listen to Robert Johnson, you're constantly hearing echoes of Leroy Carr. I'm just trying to picture Robert Johnson doing White Christmas or something like that, or, or doing I Did It My Way. Well, it, it, was, it was too early for those particular hits. But I mean, when you listen to Leroy Carr, actually, is a perfect example, because thank God he got to record a couple but of But a few years later, they would have sung them, right? Uh, when that stuff came around, I mean... Yeah, they, they would have sung these songs. Lonnie like Johnson, when he was rediscovered in the early 60s, was singing I, I Lost, Left My Heart in San Francisco and Red Sails in the Sunset. Yeah. And he was singing them well, I would add. Uh, how, how did the blues revival actually take place? Who started it? Is this an offshoot of the folk music seen in the in Greenwich Village in the 60s? Um, there were really two paths. A lot of people, I mean, for example, in Britain, it almost all came through jazz. I mean, it, the basic blues revival in Britain, even Skiffle, even doing Woody Guthrie songs, came by way of Chris Barber and trad jazz bands. And some of that happened in the United States as well. I mean, Big Bill Brunzi, in fact, Robert Johnson, um, the way people heard about Robert Johnson was that John Hammond organized a concert in 1938 and again in 39 called From Spirituals to Swing that was a history of jazz and that ended up with Count Basie and Benny Goodman on stage. But in the early stages, he wanted Robert Johnson. As it happened, Robert Johnson had just died. So as a substitute, he brought in Big Bill Brunsey, and that's why everyone in Britain discovered blues through Big Bill Brunsey in the 40s and 50s and Sonny Terry. Um, but he played two Robert Johnson records from the stage. The only records he played on stage were of African tribal music and of Robert Johnson because he personally thought Robert Johnson was the greatest blues he'd ever heard. And I think I say in the book in 1938, he was probably the only person on earth who felt that way. But thanks to the fact that he was at Columbia Records, the first LP on a major label ever of a traditional blues player other than Josh White, came out in 1961 on Columbia Records, and it was King of the Delta Blues Singers by Robert Johnson. And it completely changed the way a lot of people, particularly people in the rock world like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton, thought about blues. John Hammond has had a great deal of influence for one person in the music business. I mean, you know, between that and Bob Dylan, he's up there in heaven with, with the good guys, I think. Yeah, I, I seem to remember you mentioned... Oh, he had, the best, he had the best years in the business. Yeah. 
No, I mean, John Hammond had the best years in the business. That The list, he's the guy who brought Count Basie to New York. He's the guy who decided to record Billie Holiday. He's the guy who decided to record Aretha Franklin. He's the guy who decided to record, as you said, Bob Dylan and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, that's right. He's got a pretty good list. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned regarding that concert about Big Bill Brunsey. Wasn't there some deception about Brunsey's background at that concert? Um, yes, there absolutely was. Um, the, the point of that concert was to trace the history of blues. And so they started with African tribal music, and then they had rural American blues and spirituals. And because they were telling that story, they presented Big Bill Brunsey as a farmer from Arkansas coming up to the big city to play rural blues and actually told a story of him buying his first pair of store-bought shoes to come up to New York. Um, as it happens, Big Bill Brunsey learned to play guitar after he moved to Chicago and had already been recording current, you know, sort of blues with three saxophones backing him before he went to be the farmer from Arkansas. Now, that reminds me of another Coen Brothers movie reference. Uh, in Old Brother Where Art Thou, a blues guitarist named Tommy Johnson has just sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads, which is the myth about Robert Johnson. Now, was that just some kind of marketing fabrication, or did that actually happen? Um, you'd have to ask him, and he's long dead. Or the devil, um, who I believe were the only ones present. Uh, but the fact that we're in love with that story, I, you know, whether it's true or not, and in my experience, Robert Johnson's contemporaries do not typically talk of him in those terms. But... You know, I think a lot of what's happened is our image of the blues is kind of defined by the Rolling Stones. I mean, the Rolling Stones invented for us this idea of blues that's not Ella Fitzgerald, you know, that's not a sophisticated singer on a big stage with a practiced band. It's a bunch of scary guys with electric or acoustic guitars who you might not want to meet in a dark alley. And I mean, the Rolling Stones, you know, there's another version of that. You know, nobody, when they first heard the Rolling Stones, thought of Mick Jagger as a guy from the London School of <laughs> Economics. The idea was that he was a dangerous street hoodlum. And that's exactly the same thing as the Bill, Big Bill Brunsey appeal. Yeah, there's a, a, a box set coming out in a couple of weeks of the Rolling Stones early recordings in mono, which is really interesting. I'm a big fan of mono recordings from, from back in the day when they were recorded to be released in mono with good sound. And I was listening some of them to, to some of those early songs on Apple Music. And we forget about those early Stones cover albums how they were doing all this blues and R&B. I don't. <laughs> I, no, I don't forget. You don't forget. I mean, the general public forgets that their, their early albums were cover albums, and they were blues for the most part. You know, there's a, there's a fabulous clip of the Rolling Stones appearing on some British or American pop show in the mid-60s, and they had somehow managed to convince the producers to have Howlin' Wolf appear. And it, it's great, but it's, it's kind of surreal. Yeah, the show was Shindig, oh. and it actually wasn't even in England. It was in the United States. Mm. And the thing that's wonderful about that clip, if you watch it, is it actually starts with Mick Jagger in a haunted house singing Little Red Rooster. And you can already see the roots of Black Sabbath in the way they're presenting Mick. Yeah. And then we get Howling Wolf. It's true that the Rolling Stones are sort of this kind of funnel 
that brought the blues in and that spread it out because of the influence they had on other musicians. And I guess in a way, they were one of the bands that turned it into pop music in the 60s. Pop music for the general listening public. Um, You know, that's one of those crazy ways of telling the history. I'm not completely disagreeing with you, but I, I mean, at a moment when James Brown was on the radio doing Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, which was a straight up 12 bar blues, a man who grew up in Georgia and got early guitar lessons from Tampa Red, the idea that with James Brown all over the radio, the British invasion was introducing young white America to black blues is one of those crazy ideas that you keep seeing repeated over and over and over in rock history. Okay. Your, your, your books are, seem to be often a bit revisionist. And I don't mean revisionist in the wrong way. I mean revisionist in saying, hey, this is the real truth. And, and this is what I found in your book on the blues. Last year, I also, six months ago, when did it come out? Your Dylan Goes Electric book. I read that and... About a year ago. Yeah. yeah, and I read that when it came out and it was like, wow, you know, we'd had this story, this mythology and Pete Seeger with the axe and everything. And there's so much more to it. I, I reviewed the book on my website and, and I found it really interesting the way that you contextualized all this. Because again, we're looking back at one moment and we can't situate ourselves in the broader context. And you mentioned the context of the, the folk revival and what was on the radio and what people were listening to. And you really tell the story and show that it's just not as as, as it seems. And, and so this is both with the Blues book and the Dylan book. I find it really interesting the way you've done that. I think, you know, I honestly think more what I do is try to say, we've been telling the story one way for an awfully long time. How would it look if we told it a different way? And I'm not saying my way is better. I mean, if someone right now asks me what book should I read to understand about Mississippi blues, what I would say is read Robert Palmer's Deep Blues. Absolutely. And after you've read that, if you want to read something else, read my book, which will give you sort of a different slant on it. But I don't think my book is better than his. I think his book, honestly, is better than mine. But if all you've read is that book... Well, he is Robert Palmer, but... Well, and all I'm saying, you know... That book is about why you should be excited about this stuff and why it means something to us and why it still is valuable, that music, in the 21st century or any other time. I mean, it's the book that really establishes what, what's there. And then I'm just writing a book saying, that's great, that's important, that's the first way you need to think about this. But if you then want to say, but why were those guys doing it back then? That's a different question, and that's what I'm trying to address. Well, listen, Elijah, it's been wonderful to have you. We're going to have links to these books on, in the show notes. I Maybe we'll invite you back again to talk about the Dylan book, because I'm a big Dylan fan. So the, the book in question that we were talking about here is Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. And Elijah Wald, thanks for being our guest. Thank you very much for having me. Now it's time to tell you about our next tracks. That's the music that we're going to be listening to next. And before we do, I want to remind you that you can save 30% on Kirk's book, Take Control of iTunes 12, right now by visiting thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. Kirk, what's your next track? So since we've been talking about the blues, my next track is the first Hot Tuna album. Hot Tuna was founded by Yorma Kalkinen and Jack Cassidy, who had been members of Jefferson Airplane. And the first album 
under the Hot Tuna name, was recorded in September 1969. It was released in May 1970. It's a live album. It's Yorma on acoustic guitar and Jack on bass, with Will Scarlett playing harmonica on a few tracks. It's it's a wonderful album. It's it's really minimalist. Now, we've just been talking about the blues and authentic and all that, and Yorma Kalkinen's blues is no more authentic than mine or Doug's or anyone else's, but they did have a performance style that had its own authenticity. I think Yorma helped establish the sort of modern blues performance, at least acoustic blues performance. In a way, it's Yorma's acoustic music that has the most longevity. So this album is, what is it, 10 tracks, it's a 45-minute album, and there's a re-release in 1996 that has another five tracks. But if you're a Hot Tuna fan, you've already got this album. If you're not a Hot Tuna fan and you don't know much about the blues, this is a good way to get into it because Yorma plays songs by uh, Leroy Carr, Joey Roll Morton, Gary Davis, and, and all sorts of other musicians. So it's just called Hot Tuna. It's their first album, live album, and that's my next track. What's your next track, Doug? Well, I mentioned Howlin' Wolf in the show, and that brought to mind one of the first blues albums my teenage friends and I thought was really awesome, and that is the London Howlin' Wolf Sessions, recorded in 1970, released in 71, and there's also a deluxe extended track version that was released in 2003. It not only features Howlin' Wolf on vocals and his longtime guitar player Hubert Sumlin, but also an all-star backing band comprised of Bill Wyman, Ian Stewart, and Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones, plus Eric Clapton, with guest appearances by Steve Winwood, Mick Jagger, Klaus Vorman, Ringo Starr, Lafayette Leak, Phil Upchurch, Do I Need to Go On? Uh, it's a great blues sampler. And, and Wolf is really at the top of his game on classic numbers like Little Red Rooster, Wang Dang Doodle, I Ain't Superstitious, Sitting on Top of the World, and more. It's a great recording, too. I mean, it, it really sounds great. And if I could only have five albums on a desert island, it would be very tough not to include this one. It's a great blues album. The London Howlin' Wolf Sessions is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.